Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Three people and you're going to have four weeks to do something. <laughs> it started out of pure stubbornness, which is great. <laughs> Without necessarily meaning to, I think we found this quite interesting niche. No, we did some stuff, and the fact that it's invisible means it worked. <laughs> I think art is encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept. That was it, not the time-travelling robot idea that we had. Hello, I am Sam Fry and welcome to Technique, the podcast where we talk to artists about technology. Today I interview a writer, poet and creative producer. Here she is introducing herself. Hi, I'm Vic Bennett and I'm a writer and immersive storyteller based up in rural Cumbria. Yes, today's guest is Vic Bennett. Vic is a poet who has received a number of awards, including a Northern Promise Award for Poetry, the Northern Debut Award, and the Waterhouse Award for Poetry. Vic is also well known for having founded Wild Women Press, where she provides a space for a community of women to share their ideas, stories, inspirations, and actions for positive change. Also, Vic is co-director of The Wizard and the Wild, an immersive digital storytelling partnership, which she runs with her partner, Adam Clark, who you might remember from episode 33 of this podcast on Minecraft art. In this episode, I have a great chat with Vic about her creative writing, about Wild Women Press, and what it's like to collaborate on her The Wizard and the Wild projects. But mainly, we speak about a recent project of hers, Wild Woman Gamer, a celebration of the inspiring women working and creating positive change within the gaming community. So, let's get into the interview, which begins with me asking Vic about how she began creative writing. I think I've always written one of those children who was observing from a very young age trying to work out what was going on around me and I suppose in that way I was telling stories all the time and so writing became the next stage of that and I was surrounded by books and poetry when I was growing up so that was that was definitely influential we didn't have a television we weren't allowed tv or anything like that strangely my mum and dad had the video game pong i thinking pong anyway that was the only thing we had in the house so somebody must have given remembering that someone must have given us that but we didn't have any kind of visual we had cartoons on a reel-to-reel silly silly thing and that was it so it was just books and then i suppose i was good at it so i carried on doing it and it was one of those things that i was encouraged to do and I don't, I don't think I ever thought I would do anything else. I wrote poetry all the time, you know, that sort of the famous line from the song, it's bad but intimate poetry probably when I was in my teens. But I, I always wrote poetry and did short stories. I think I, I won a 
competition, national competition when I was 13 for writing an incredibly depressing story about post-apocalyptic situation where everybody was trapped inside a school and started sort of systematically murdering each other and, you know, that, that sort of cheerful thing that you write when you're 13. <laughs> I think that encouraged me because, I, I, I you know, it was, a, it was a proper competition and there was a big prize-giving thing and then it was about 20 years before I won anything else. So it was a little bit of, a, of an illusion-breaker on that one. But I left school at 16, so I didn't carry on academically at that point. And in terms of the subject matter... Of, of your poetry what types of subjects were you writing about has that changed much over time I'd say I've always written from the personal I say now sort of the teenage stuff obviously there would have been a lot of teenage angst in there but it it's always basically come from the same place it's experiences that I'm having as a human being how I've observed them what's going on around me got quite a heavy sort of presence of, of a relationship with nature whether that's nature of our bodies or nature of what's around us. My most recent book that came out in August, which is called To Start the Year from Its Quiet Centre, uh, was written about caring for my mum through terminal cancer and her death. And, and I think that that probably says quite a lot about how I write because I, I write poems that are very close to the experience and, and talk about the actual process of, of dying, you know, the physical process and, and the, you know, the emotional sort of letting go and the grief. But I don't really shy away from talking about the the more intimate stuff. Is that quite hard to do? It's not hard to write. It's hard to share. <laughs> I suppose as a when I write, well, with whether I'm writing everything really, but I suppose what I'm trying to do is find get as close as I can to what the experience is like. So it's for me, poetry is very immersive, and although it's a pulling back of the language as far as possible. The purpose behind it is to try and invite somebody in to experience that as closely as possible to what I have gone through. And I think that that's, you know, that may, I suppose it may be very much about my experience, but by taking it down to that that sort of intimacy, then I hope that it's also a shared experience because we all sort of, we all know we're mortal, don't we? We all know that our bodies are going to have to go through this process and, and nature goes through that process. And I think that we... You know, in particular with that book, I was writing about it first and foremost for myself and then in the process of crafting and putting that together as, as, a, as a collection of poetry. I was writing it for an audience at that point as well and to, to share it as a story and, and to take a reader through that process of coming to terms with, with what was happening and, and then going through the process of loss and, and, and the sort of the, then the, the process of letting go afterwards and that's taking someone on a, a journey, I suppose. I won't say that I'm a massive poetry reader, but I think when I have gone to read poetry, quite often it is in those moments where you want to find a connection of some kind or often that is quite melancholic you want to be connected with someone that's had a similar experience or is feeling some similar emotions i mean i've read some beautiful poems about some very you know what would be seen i suppose as positive things but i think that you're right that there is a certain melancholy in there um i always think of cauliflowers with that word <laughs> sorry it's one of those words that makes me giggle inside. But I think it's less about it being an unhappiness and more about it being a humanity because 
even in things like, you know, I've read some wonderful poetry about, for example, motherhood or, or parenthood, or, which may be that sort of very, very positive thing, but the poems may have something else. It, it's it's a kind of a lifting up the veil, and uh, we're so often kind of in society, we're, we're trying to present ourselves in a certain way, and we have these barriers between who we are that say, you know, we we have to behave in a certain way or we have to not behave in a certain way. or And poetry goes past those barriers and it says, you know, I'm in this world and you're in that world, but we've got this shared experience that connects us. And I think that's why poetry more than anything kind of connects people, for me, across cultures and across countries and, and allows us to, to find our shared humanity, but also to learn something about another person, another person's world. It's interesting, particularly today's world and especially at the moment where people are living a lot more digitally because they can't necessarily go and see people and so they're communicating digitally i mean we're recording this digitally and online you know there is a there's a facade of of this is who someone is um, if you're on a social media channel, it's normally a representation of either part of themselves or a portrayal of a version of themselves. So actually, in every medium, there are ways of, of getting to a, a kind of deeper state, but maybe it's even more necessary given people view others through that digital kind of false lens. It's been interesting to see what's happened over this last year because apparently poetry sales have increased, which I think is quite telling. And given that poetry is, you know, when I used to facilitate workshops in schools and poetry would always be the one that, you know, would be invited in as an artist, a visiting artist, you'd stand in front of the class and say, you know, and they'd say, well, and this, you know, this is Victoria and she's she's a poet and she's going to be doing poetry with you today. And like, 20% of the class would be like, yay! And the rest would be like, oh, God, poetry. <laughs> so I think it's got a bad rep to it, but... It's also, like you say, it, it's it's a go-to place and more and more people are, are purchasing poetry and listening to poetry. And, I mean, it's been interesting for me, I'm going to go off tangent here, but my life is quite limited in terms of what I can engage with outside of home, partly through being a carer and also through having chronic illness. So for me, this year, I've actually been able to engage with much more than normal and I have friends who've experienced the same thing you know I've been able to go and see performances and listen to live music and go to poetry readings and give poetry readings and talk about my work <laughs> oddly I think it's allowed a much more diversity in in the arts this year despite what's going on and despite the fact that it's collapsing all around us and we're supposed to just go and take paper rounds because honestly we haven't been doing anything for the last you know 30 40 whatever years that we've been working developing our craft but that's another whole topic <laughs> I've experienced a much higher access to things and I think that because of that access there's kind of an explosion of opportunities in telling stories digitally that wasn't there maybe even 12 months ago those people who've been involved in it have known that it's there but bringing everybody else on board has happened very rapidly now so I think people are going to be turning much more to it and going well how can we use this format how can we use these these tools to tell stories and connect with each other but for somebody who doesn't have much access to meeting with people in the physical world 
for me this doesn't feel like I'm distanced from you or whoever because this is more contact than I would have been able to have otherwise. I started out going back, I don't think how long it's been, it's like surely not that long. Going back to early 1990s, I suppose, I started out wanting to go into film and I was training, doing media and video studies at a community studios. This is in the days where video really was video and you had to splice stuff and things. <laughs> I was set to go to Bournemouth to study script writing, but they lost my application. One of those moments that changes the course of what I was going to do. And I ended up going and doing creative studies and community arts instead in Portsmouth. And while I was there, I had to do a year-long placement. And I I worked with Survivors Poetry, which is a poetry organisation that facilitates workshops with people who are users of the mental health service. I really enjoyed that work, felt that it had connected me with it. I, I had previously been a user of mental health services myself earlier on in my life and I could really understand the sort of value of, of that opportunity to connect with personal stories and to take charge of one's own voice and, and one's story and tell it. So sort of from that I then got quite heavily involved with community arts and I trained arts disability training for trainers and and for quite a few years then worked doing workshops residencies with mainly sort of focusing around mental health work and arts in mental health in that process of working I found that there were many more women using the front end I would say of mental health services So counselling, psychotherapy, pharmaceutical intervention for sort of low-level depression, anxiety, that sort of thing. And the more work I did, the more I started to feel that maybe if people, particularly my my interest was working with women, but so maybe if women had more of an opportunity to get together and be creative and, and share their stories and feel empowered to do that, that less would end up in a situation where they were having to use the mental health services. So that's why I founded Wild Women back in 1999, and that was kind of, I suppose, my impetus to do it. And it was kind of a, I woke up one morning and went, yeah, I know what I've got to do, I've got to do this, and drew out posters and stuck them to walls and said, you know, do you want to come along and tell your story? And that's, they did. <laughs> I suppose alongside of that, I've done workshops in schools and taught at university. and So I've done the more sort of traditional side of facilitating creative writing. And I've done a lot of collaborative work with Adam because um, we've been together a very long time. <laughs> so he, we've, I've always kind of enjoyed that bringing together of, of writing and visual work. So earlier on, we would do a lot of collaborative work which involved painting and... and um, drama and stuff like that and then sort of more recently obviously it's sort of developed more into the digital side of things one of the reasons that we're talking at the moment is because of wild women gamer which i think is something that's been working on more recently on that journey 
Can you tell me a bit about that area? Okay, um, it's Wild Woman Gamer. I'm very confusing Sorry. because it's Wild Women. It's Wild Women Press. <laughs> I run, but it's Wild Woman Gamer. <laughs> I mean that that's a, sort of an interesting one as well because obviously Wild Wild Women's been going for 21 years now, and its focus has always been poetry, creative writing, music, arts, kind of nature based work, that sort of thing. Not gaming at all, and there's not one gamer in there. In the group. So why end up doing something that's focusing on gaming? So Wild Woman Gamer came about, gosh, it was only the beginning of this year. It feels a long time ago. At the beginning of this year, I applied to the Winston Churchill Fellowship, which is a travel fellowship. And I applied to do a project called Wild Woman Gamer. And the idea behind it was to be able to travel to Europe, place in Europe and America and in the UK to meet with women involved in gaming, whether that's gaming from the sort of playing side to sort of researchers and academics or game developers. or So sort of a wide range of women working within it that to talk to them about why they were working games, where they saw their games placed in terms of that telling of stories and owning of stories by women and how they felt games could be and were being used as a kind of a, a, an agent of positive change, I suppose, is, is the, the, the quickest way to say it. The idea was that I would come back with that research and then work with women in this community, you know, with the Wild Women Group and also other women within the rural northern community to look at their stories and say, well, you know, how can you use this platform of gaming to tell your stories? The reason I want I started to do that was obviously I live in a house where games are very prevalent. I don't think there is a room actually that hasn't got some kind of device in it. <laughs> and I was very reluctant, really reluctant to get anywhere into gaming. I mean, honestly, when Adam and I were expecting Django, the thing that makes me laugh the most, I don't know whether you could put this in, but we had this antenatal session. We were asked to throw beanbags, depending on whether we felt strongly against or for something, and it was to see our par- how our parenting would fit together when we had our child. <laughs> and it got to video games, and it was like the more you were against, you went left, the more you were, you were for, you went right. And my beanbag went way off to the left and Adam's beanbag went way off to the right so we were completely not compatible and and I said you know right you know we're not going to have any video games he's not going to play video games you know video games are bad video games are evil well not quite but it's not healthy it's addictive it's all of the things that are said about gaming and of course I I wasn't going to win that argument because they were there obviously our son's there looking and going well what's daddy doing I'll just copy what Daddy's doing because that's, you know, if he was sawing something up, I'm sure he would have been sawing something up, but he wasn't. He was playing a video game and making a video games and things. So, And it was a case of had to choose really at some point whether or not I was going to walk away from it and say, right, that's it, you know, it's me or the video games kind of thing, or find out what it was about and say, well, OK, I, I don't understand this world. Show me what this world is about. Show me why this is important. And that's what I did. I I went home and I said, "Okay, well, teach me. Teach me about this stuff. Show me. 
And the more I found out about games and the more games I saw and got involved in and the more work I started being involved in in terms of researching for Minecraft projects and things, the more I started to see that this was a really powerful and a really playful, yeah, a really engaging space for stories to be told. Because, you know, when I'm writing a poem, I'm trying to bring somebody into that experience and share that and find that place of connection. But but in a, in a game, that's even more powerful because somebody's actually involved in the process of going through that experience and, and making choices and really kind of engaging and connecting with it, particularly if it's immersive, like if it's VR and things, then it's even more so. And that really, you know, that kind of makes me go all sort of tingly and get excited about it and go, ah, that's, I want to be able to work in that medium. I want to be able to use that. But I look at a lot of the games and go, well, where's my sort of stories? Where are my stories? Where's my, my kind of voice? Where are the middle-aged rural women? <laughs> and the more I looked, the more I thought, well, it needs to be there because if this is a platform that is becoming and, and I think will will actually surpass you know the medium of film then women have to have voices in that everybody has to there has to be a diversity of voices and stories so then I thought right well what was what was wild women about and that was about creating a space through writing and and other arts for women to tell their stories I want to look at gaming I want to look at how we can use gaming how other people are using gaming and what other women working within games have got to say about that and their experience and why they're doing it and what are the games they're making and playing and thinking about. And again, very much a sort of a positive celebration of that. You know, there's a lot wrong with it. There is a lot wrong with the gaming community in terms of attitudes towards women, but the strongest way that I've found to change that sort of thing is to create the things that make people change their minds about it because they, they see that if people are constantly playing games where women are depicted in a certain way then it doesn't shift any of that narrative. You know, it's not that I think everybody that plays games is going to be a misogynistic, violent sort of serial killer at all. <laughs> but you need to change the narratives. There needs to be a diversity of narratives for people to be able to understand that the games that they play are as much a reflection of who we all are and, and the, the differences and, and the similarities between us. <laughs> So I went to a gaming exhibition a couple of years ago and it was about the process of making games, process of writing, and, and it had a few games. As... Was it the V&A one? Because oh, um, there was the mm, big V&A one. It was the V&A, yes, it was yeah. the V&A. Yes, you're right. So I remember at that exhibition, they did have a section that was around diversity and it had a few different people speaking about gaming and the gaps in in actually the voices that are shown in gaming and there's a few examples that are are interesting but and it really that really stayed with me of every, everything in that exhibition that was the one thing i came away thinking about but i still think it's the gaming industry is very male and very shooting based or sport based still it's the marketing behind the gaming industry the developers are there wanting to create, you know, men and women, you know, wanting to create interesting games. But unless the marketing people 
say there's an audience for that, then they won't get made. They get made by the indie indie developers just, but the larger gaming companies are, are going to shy away from them. But the problem is, it's a perpetuating thing, because if you say, well, there isn't a market for it, then the games get made, that the people that there would be a market for the other thing, the other type of games go, well, I don't want to play that. So then there's not a market for it. I mean, I've talked to the women in, in Wild Women, and we said, well, what kind of, what would you play? Starting from a kind of, well, what, what puts you off gaming, to what would interest you? You know, if you saw a game that was this or that, you know, would you be interested in playing it? And that's kind of a much more telling thing, because what it basically says is there are people there that want to play these games. There's a huge, diverse audience, you know, who all sorts of things. But we're not interested in their money. We're not interested in them being part of this culture because they don't fit. Even though I think it's something like 46% of people gaming are women and the highest proportion of rise in gaming is in that 35 to 50 age group, you know. It's like, it doesn't fit. So if people can't see themselves, they're not going to feel that they can access games. If they can't see anything that represents them, if they can't see the people that they connect with, then they're going to feel outside of it. And so they won't play, and then they won't create, and then it just goes round and round and round. So I think I got asked in the um, Winston Churchill thing about what was I doing to change that, and I said, well, just sitting here, I'm changing it, because I'm a then 48-year-old woman living in rural Cumbria who didn't have any background in games, saying, I want to change this. And also, I think when people talk about gaming, you automatically go, okay, it's the big consoles, it's Xbox and PlayStation or pc gamers that are really into it but actually gaming is pretty wide spectrum as well and a lot of people game even without thinking themselves as gamers by using an app on their phone or or whatever and so actually the entry points might be different for different people and i think you know that that then comes down to also to access of you know, affordable equipment. What is it? I mean, I don't know the price of the new PlayStation. It's like, oh, you know, <laughs> it's outside of our price range. <laughs> uh, you know, I suppose it's the same thing as, as reading, isn't it? If people feel, like with poetry, where we started off talking about poetry, if people feel like poetry is not for them because they believe that it's dead white males that write it, <laughs> then they're not going to access poetry because they can't see themselves. But as poetry has started... It's still got a long way to go, but it's started to change. You know, different voices have started to come through. Then more people are get getting engaged in poetry. I mean, I think there's a big upsurge of younger people buying poetry, reading poetry, and that came about through called the Instagram poets, putting poetry in a different platform, sharing it in a different way, talking about things that, that people went, yeah, that I connect with that, that, that's my voice. And then suddenly there's a whole new group of poets and they're writing in different ways. or, But again, you know, I'm going to bark on about being the old middle-aged woman in rural Cumbria because it's like there's an older voice that needs to be present and it needs to be in there in gaming and it needs to be there in storytelling in, in, on all platforms because older women have something to give in terms of experience, in terms of stories to tell. And it's it's very much an invisible world. You know, there's a, there's a certain point where it's like, well... That's not of interest anymore to anybody. But, of course, what about all the other people of that age <laughs> who might be interested? So 
so with Wild Woman Gamer, what have you learned through the process so far across this year and what are you looking to, to do around some of that work? What's interesting is that there's a, there's a whole range. It's women who are working in games, you know, a whole variety of people producing different types of games. And I think, I mean, I'm not sure at the moment, because of what's happening in the world, my focus is on creating a space where those stories and those those games and those experiences can be shared, which we're doing through a, a blog on Wild Women Press and through a newsletter and just starting to create networks of people that are contributing to that i mean ideally i would like to see that grow and evolve and i I don't want to kind of say exactly how that's going to be because i think that's going to be dependent on what people want to do with it in my blue sky thinking i've got wild woman games somewhere in there (laughs) i'm also you know two-thirds of the way through writing a non-fiction work which is not to do with games and doing lots of other stuff so that like i said that's a sort of blue sky thing I want to raise the profile so people can start thinking more about the questions behind it. Like, well, okay, what are games? Can I connect with them? What do I think about them? Challenging that one's own kind of perceptions of games is important as well because, you know, I had to do it with myself because I think that they are going to be such an important storytelling vehicle. I mean, I spoke to someone the other day and she said, well, well, it looks really interesting that Wild Woman Gamer, but I'm not a gamer. And I said, well, neither am I. I don't have to be a games developer to be interested and to know the potential that's there. There's such potential with games to involve all sorts of other people, you know, scientists and artists and there's health, medicine, you know, there's all these different worlds that can connect. So we don't need to kind of say well games exists in this sort of exclusive world that doesn't connect with any of the other ones because it does you know it's it's got to be involved with those worlds and the more people realize that it's accessible the more those games will change because people will start saying well you know i am interested in either i'm interested and this is my story i mean this is what i hope really i suppose is that people will start to say yeah this is this is my story and i want to tell that so how can I tell that? And maybe that will be a really simple game that's made and can be played in a very simple terms, or maybe it will be a really complex thing that involves an entire studio, or or maybe so you know two people might get together and say, well, we both got this idea, and one of them might be you know technologically whiz kid and go, yeah, you know, I can do this. But I want people to start, particularly women, to start saying, I want to tell my story, and I'm going to use this technology. I'm going to use these these things that are there and I'm going to tell my story and I'm going to reach people. That's empowering and through empowerment we create positive change. So, you know, so, yeah, you know, I wrote a book about caring for my mother when she had mesothelioma. I also created a Minecraft map based on caring for her called My Mother's House. And people went, you can't make a Minecraft map about somebody having terminal cancer. You can. <laughs> and people came up to me, after, you know, when I put that out there and said, thank you for doing that. You know, that that helped me talk to my child about it or that helped me think about an experience that I've had. And But that's just me going, well, I want to share that experience. And I'm going to do it through that way because I can. Not because I've got skill in it, but because I've got a right to tell my story. And I think everybody needs to feel that way, that they've got a right to to access 
this storytelling platform and to have agency over those narratives and say, my story is worth listening to, my story is of value. And if if a person's story is seen of value, then they're seen of value. And if they're seen as of value, then they feel valued. So it kind of keeps going around. So the more someone feels valued in society, the more they feel able to contribute, able to change things that maybe are disempowering or and we all need a bit of hope right now I think that we can do that have you done any writing for a particular game would that be something that you would do I would definitely do (laughs) haven't been asked to do that but I would definitely do that I mean I've been working with a couple of women in the wild women group to look at possibility of a choose your own adventure type game based on kind of wild woman journey but we keep getting stuck in the valley of procrastination <laughs> there's other stories I, I i worked with wild women i worked alongside a, a publisher called Fairacre press that brought out an anthology a couple of years ago called the um, me too women's poetry anthology i created a platform online for people to share their poems outside of the poetry anthology that had been published and helped coordinate events and stuff and I worked with Adam Clark <laughs> and uh, a musician called Beth Porter and we created a video piece called What We Know Now which was a response to the poems within that anthology so that's that kind of went out there and I'd like to look at that more as well that kind of that relationship between poetry and VR spaces I had started but it's now on hold a master's of research with University of Highlands and Islands up in Shetland that was looking at VR and AR and poetry in telling stories of loss, so looking at landscapes of loss, whether that's sort of personal landscapes or ecological loss or heritage loss. And I think there's, there's some real, really interesting potential in those areas for immersive games to develop. I'm kind of excited to start trying <laughs> it's really interesting you maybe this is <laughs> like feels like i'm prying but the, <laughs> between you and adam and and uh you know the wizard and the wild concept as well it must be a really interesting dynamic because you, you must draw each other in these sort of quite different directions that is really good for creativity in terms of he's quite digital and and, and gaming focus and obviously spoke to him on on this podcast before and and then actually your kind of your creativity and your writing and your insights in terms of that community of women and their creative process not a lot of people would have that as a as an opportunity so accessible to be able to go okay well where would you take that okay you would take it there i wouldn't even think to do that yeah i mean i think that we've um you know it, it was it was all planned <laughs> You know, when we met at school, which we did, (laughs) it was all planned. It's a really exciting dynamic that it can feel difficult. I suppose it has in the past where it's like, well, I don't understand, you know, particularly sort of of like, well, that's not my world or that's not my world. But then, like you say, sort of bring bring somebody in and go, well, yeah, but have you thought about that? So, and also we have, you know, obviously we've got our son, so who's also, you know, homeschooling as well. And he contributes a huge amount to that creative process too i think a good example would be um we did a project a couple of years ago called trace up in orkney sort of a short 
self-directed residency. I was looking at poetry and stories within the landscape, and Adam was looking at, could he take a VR system out into the middle of nowhere? (laughs) That was his sort of... (laughs) That was his, could he take a VR system out of the studio and into the natural world? So really different places that we were coming from. We went to Orkney on the sunniest year that it's ever had, of course, which we then discovered that VR systems don't like being in bright sunlight. So that was a challenge. But he was doing human scale VR and AR sketches, um, particularly the AR ones, actually. Was, and, and I suddenly I was I was watching him do this and he'd be sort of walking along and, and sort of just holding his phone and, and, you know, a line would be created across the beach or just sketching around me while I was standing on, on, on the beach or, you know, things like that. So he was, he was looking at how you could create these shapes and spaces in the natural world, but through AR. And I looked and I got so excited because I said, you know, that's, that just says to me so much about what, what my experience of bereavement is like. I was like, hey, what? <laughs> I was like, you know, because you've got... When when somebody dies, you know they're they're present. They they don't go. You know there's these echoes that exist everywhere. So go to a familiar space and and they'll still be there. You know you'll have a memory of them being there. And I say you know you've got these traces of people, the traces of energy. And and even you know when we move through space, we create a trace of energy. We we upset the atoms. We you know we we leave. We change the space that we're in. Which then led on to me looking at, and there's a Judith Butler quote about we, we're the enigmatic traces. You know, we're made up of the enigmatic traces of others. So that got me interested in kind of the idea of how we formed by the people that have gone before us and how do we connect with the natural world and that kind of idea of archaeological heritage and hidden history. And then Adam started looking at, you know, well, how could you use these sort of XR spaces to to explore that idea of absence and and we're just sort of both sort of colliding with all of these things but but we didn't set out to do that at all we set out to kind of we were both kind of going oh we're really interested in these things we're doing of our own but then it's like we have that wonderful sort of opportunity to be able to look over our shoulder and go well hang on a minute so I've started looking much more in terms of using those spaces to tell stories and how those sort of poetry can become visually represented in that. And then he started looking more at like, well, what was he trying to, what was he doing in that? You know, it wasn't just about a digital experiment. You know, there was um, something else happening in there. And then how could he, you know, how could he work with that? So aren't we lucky? I guess with digital art, often the the best work comes out when people are collaborating from completely different angles. You got artists, you got technologists, you got a philosopher and a historian, or this collision of different people coming with completely different perspectives. You need someone to drive that forward, but actually, it's those influences that make it really interesting. And you have got this microcosm of of that going on in your own household. It's brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, it also means that we've kind of constantly got ideas of what of things we can do and never quite have enough time. <laughs> Same about the Wild Women thing as well. Obviously, Adam's been, you know, in the background of that right from 
the start and after the first series of, of workshops I did, I said to the women in the group, well, you know, what would you like to do with the, with the stuff that you've written and the stories you've told? Do you fancy putting it into a book? And they're like, yeah, yeah. And then I turned to Adam and was like, okay, how do I do that? You know, because I've never, I've never put a book together. Even down to that, where he's like, okay, you know, I've got my, you know, my desktop publisher, <laughs> that kind of thing, and put our book together. And so he's seen sort of where I've come from and, and with that story. And then his, his creative stuff sort of developed on that side. And I've been involved with all the, you know, the Minecraft projects too as well. So, you know, I'm there trying to, I'm saying, but you could tell this story with it and you could do this with it. And he tells me about games and says, well, have a look at this one and what about that? And In a way that I suppose, you know, that helped me to be able to access games because he was able to say, well, you know, it's not all those type of games. You know, there's this one and, and how about this? And I still feel really sick as soon as I put on a VR set. I'm one of those people that it doesn't work <laughs> i have to i have to be sat really still i can't i fall over as soon as i put a, a vr headset on but he was able to kind of show me other types of things and i suppose give me the confidence to be able to then approach other women who who are making games and say you know because at first i felt like i couldn't do that because i wasn't again exactly that you know i was trying to do this project to break down that barrier but at the same time was thinking to myself oh well I can't do that because what do I know so and Adam said well it doesn't matter just go and talk about why you're interested because you don't have to know how to make a game to know why a game is important and I don't need to be able to do the sort of digital wizardry that Adam does because I bring something else to it I bring the wild <laughs> The Wizard and Wild. (laughs) That was my interview with Vic Bennett. I love that discussion and could have spoken with Vic for hours. Since recording this, I have also been reading a few of her poems, which are really interesting and quite emotive, so I would recommend having a read of her work. If you are interested in finding out more about Vic's work, this is where you can find it. Wild Women Press, we have a website, so it's wildwomenpress.com, and that's got all our projects are on it's got wild woman gamer as well so that's a monthly piece that goes out featuring a new you know different a different woman contributor each time we've just had threefold games have just done the last month their new game before i forget which is sort of looks at dementia which is really interesting and we have alongside that a newsletter that goes out so you can just subscribe to that it's free that goes out once a month. They both go out on the first of the month and that sort of looks at games, books, other things that we're looking at. And we've got a, got a couple of newsletters, actually. So if you go onto the website, you'll see that you can subscribe. You know, there's links there. You can subscribe to the newsletters as well. I have my work on my website, which is Be Wild. So B-B-E-E-W-Y-L-D.co.uk. That sort of has a selection of stuff. And it, they're on Twitter as well, so it's 
just Wild Women Press. You can find us on Twitter. And Vic B. Wild, again with the double E in the middle. Thank you to Vic Bennett for being interviewed in this episode. Plus, thank you for listening. If you did like this episode, it would be great if you could subscribe to the show and rate it five stars on iTunes. It really helps us reach a larger audience. If you have any feedback on the show, you can also get in contact on Twitter on at Technique UK. Plus, we are now on Instagram, which is a new thing this month. There we are on Technique Podcast, all one word. There's not a lot of information on there just yet, but it is part of our broader plans to improve the show. So if you can follow us on there too, then that would be great. That is all the time we have for this month, but we will be back again next month with a new interview. In the meantime, take very good care of yourself. Goodbye. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.